0: Hello and welcome to the Icelandic Art Centre Out There. I'm your host Becky Forsyth and this series is all about exploring Icelandic artists and art out in the field. In this episode, we meet artist Gwiljon Kettelson on a rainy day in his studio in downtown Reykjavik. The space is part woodshop, part storage well-lived and worked in, with framed works and sculptures covering the walls and objects piled up in corners. We travel back to different memories, talk specific works and long-running practices. It is welcoming when Gwyllion greets us. Can you tell us a little bit about, about yourself, who you are and, and what you do, Gwyllion?
1: Yes, uh, I am an Icelandic artist, and consider myself mostly sculptor. And uh, I do a lot of drawings as well. And, uh, well, most things that uh, have to do with... Well, my works are, are are very different and always changing. I'm not fixed on one material or something, you know.
0: Where did it all begin for you?
1: Well, my mother was a painter. Well, well she was a amateur painter, you know, and I was all, always around her and... Uh, I sometimes think that I went into this uh, because of the smell of, of oil painting. It was something that uh, I was really fascinated by, and of course I started to paint a little bit uh, as a boy. and uh, And then after graduate school, I, I uh, went to the uh, art school. Then it was not an ac- academy then, and graduated in seventy uh, eight. From the recently developed Department of Mixed Media, then Nílista Deldin. was founded by, by Magnus Paulson and Hildur Haukunadóttir. And then I went to Canada. I wanted to go to the States, but the, the good schools there were very expensive. And uh, <laughs> I went to, to Nova Scotia, Nova Scotia College of Art, into uh, the Sculpture Department Yes, that's my background. <laughs> <laughs> your
0: earliest memories are, are of your mother painting?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think so, yeah. She had a small space in, at home, but she also took some courses. Um,
0: you mentioned Nielstedild. Can you explain a bit what the atmosphere was at the time during your studies in that, that department?
1: There was a lot going on, on in those years, you know there was a group of people, maybe 12, 15 people that uh, were not able to decide if they wanted to go to the painting department or, gra- or graphic printing or, or sculpture. So uh, Magnus Paulson suggested that we, that we just formed a, a department of our own and, and uh, that was it. There, there was, uh, of course, as I say, a lot going on and, and uh, we wanted to try these new medias, you know, video and performances and, and printing books and all sorts of things that, uh, that were exciting them, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: This was actually the beginning of a much longer story. The department really was a catalyst for things that we still see today, for yeah. example... You know the Living art Museum and yeah. um, these alternative spaces for learning maybe yeah
1: yeah, and the living art museum is is part of this movement i mean it it was uh, founded i think in seventy eight or nine or something yeah, even though we are not we are not considered founders, you know, but we were just asked after, afterwards you know
0: yeah. participating in what, in what led up to it yeah Yeah. I mean, your experience of that department must have been very defining in terms of, you know, what happened in your own practice following that. What did you take with you from that department as you moved into a new education system in Canada?
1: Yes, I was working on things that are related to this idea of conceptualism. and, And that was, of course, the a thing then and but I started to work I was always very fascinated with material you know and that was not uh, the big idea <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, and then for a while after after I came back I started to paint for a few years and and try this and that you know so mm. but but I think this this affected how I go about to or, or how I get near to my ideas or or how I pr- approach my ideas mm-hmm. so I, I I never just approach on an empty canvas you know with nothing you know I always start to work something and drawing has always been very strong part of my working process okay. I draw a lot and uh I think that's very important. And uh, I use drawing as, you know, sketches for three-dimensional things, but also as a medium of its own, you know, I do do drawings. Mm -hmm. So I draw something and uh, and, uh, I'm curious how it looks in three-dimensional things. So I start working. So that's normally the, Mm -hmm. has been the... Process.
0: So it's very much of a starting point and also an end point in many ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Can we go yeah. back a bit to your comment about materials? So what materials excite you the most?
1: Well, nowadays, everything, <laughs> <laughs> basically. But uh, it has been, I've been working a lot with wood. That was really a coincidence or or it was not i have never learned anything you know in woodworking or or but, uh, you know it just started and it sort of grew on me or or i'm used to it and and i often uh work in wood but nowadays i'm mostly using found material i have uh, made works the recent years that uh that are really about finding wood and material. So I write where I find it and describe the object or piece and things like this. But nowadays uh, I'm just walking the streets and waiting for something to happen, you know.
0: Behind you, there's rollers that have text stamped into them. Yeah. Can you tell me a bit about these works?
1: For a while I I did a lot of uh, tools. They're... uh, purpose is not very clear. So but these are tools that are that you can roll a repeated sentence or, or words, you know, and you can stamp them in sand or on the beach or or in the snow. And one of them says Yaya Yaya and repeatedly and Yaya uh, is an Icelandic word that really has no direct meaning, you know that word. Mm-hmm. You know, it can mean a lot, you know. Mm-hmm. So, and uh, one roller says, etc., etc. So it's just repeating that. Mm-hmm. And the third one is, uh, c'est la vie, c'est la vie.
0: As you speak about them, there seems to be a performative element. Yeah. Is that directly part of the work or is that conceptual intention?
1: Well, I have exhibited them with a line of sand that I print, you know, so it's an installation of the results of a performance, but it's not a performance in that way that I, mm-hmm. I um, do in front of audience, but obviously it is, you know, the result of, of something has happened here.
0: Thinking about new tools, in an earlier exhibition, Text uh, prope. He talks about the tools as an extension of the body or of being, um, which is quite a nice description, I think. And he mentions that that brings us closer to these things. What is it that you're seeking in your investigations with this long series of tools? What is at the core of it?
1: Well, I've often been very interested in the relation between the objects that I make, the sculptures, and the body and the way that you set your body into the sculptures or the object. I used to go a lot to and like these old folk museums, you know, and and seeing old tools that... You can't really see the purpose or how you use them, mm-hmm. but you try to put your hands usually. you hold there and you do this, and you know you try to allow the tool to teach itself on you. Mm-hmm. you know. And I was very interested in that, that you for one that the tool is convincing as a tool, you know, not a, an art object, necessarily, but a but tool. That you see is used and you try to imagine how you fit into it or, or how you can use it. Yeah, that was my my drive in this in this process. The
0: scale of the works are, are made in comparison to the physical body. Yeah. yeah. Grayness between craft and art and craftsmanship must in some way come into the dialogue about your work. What is the meaning of that
1: dialogue to you it's very important like for example in the, in the tools I found out very early because it was a long period of time that I was working with them I used to make a tool in between other bigger works you know and it was relaxing just to a, a spontaneous thing but I found out very early that I had to make them uh, make them convincing, you know, that they have to look like tools, like they had been used, and that was a part of it. And I spent a lot of time, yeah, making them. And I think uh, in other cases, it's not so big deal. But in some cases, I have to work very slowly, you know, because I'm thinking about the development of where this is going, where... Should I go? This you know, it 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 can't go very fast. You know, it's it's developing uh, while I'm making them. Mm-hmm. So, so the time factor is important.
0: And you allow yourself the freedom for the development of the work to take place in the process. Exactly. So when you set out, you don't have an immediate end goal. No. Yeah.
1: Like in, in those pieces, I draw maybe a very rough sketch of, of something. Uh, sometimes it's uh, based on on a metal object that I find somewhere, and I put uh, maybe a handle on that, a wooden handle on that, and sometimes I draw a rough sketch of something like that. I always give myself the freedom of changing things in the process so it has to go very slowly, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that means that uh, you can see it. You know that
0: the decisions are become very precise. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're the current recipient of the Icelandic Art Prize Artist of the Year. What does it feel like to be recognized for your contribution to art in Iceland in that way?
1: Well, I, I was, of course, <laughs> I was, of course, really happy. You know, and uh, it's also mostly, I think, because it's given by my colleagues. You know that that is something that is touching. I was just, you know, it, it's it's of course very strange to put these things into measurement. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. it, it's absurd, of course. But I've often had that opinion that things like this are really worth something just to put the focus on visual art, you know. I think it's important. I get shy when you ask this question.
0: <laughs> Rightfully so, understandably. <laughs> there was reference to an exhibition in terms of the prize. Yes. Can you speak a bit about that?
1: The, the title of the show is Tech. It's very hard to translate, so I decided to have the Icelandic word. It was in uh, Reykjanes uh, Art Museum, and it uh, consists of sculptures and and drawings and drawing on the wall, you know five meters and mostly it was uh, directed to text drawings that I have been working on for a while. you know I think it's so curious you know the the how you express yourself through through this form of drawing, and I'm concentrating mostly on 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 that side but not the communication side and the visual part of this. And then I had some sculptures on the floor and those were both very new works and, and also older ones.
0: In terms of the exhibition and drawing directly on the wall, how long did it take you to produce the drawing and what sort of preparation did it take to lead up to entering the gallery space and and producing that
1: work this is a, a form of of drawing so i the text is genesis from the creation of the world and the text i made a drawing out of each and every letter you know so you can't really read the text and uh, the destruction of this story and the story of creation is of course a circle of creation and destruction and then after the show it was painted over so the circle was closed and what I did was I made the text on the wall and then improvised the drawings of course I cannot um, project uh, the text on the wall I just write it and and so it's done on the spot
0: you know it's very intuitive and activated in that way as you say More of a representation of the act versus yeah. the reading of it.
1: Yeah. This is something that uh, I'm trying to develop every time I do this oh. because I, I don't want to repeat the same. It's not, a, it's not a calligraphy. It's not a form of symbols. It's, it's just drawings mm-hmm. and spontaneous drawings
0: thinking in that way about this work that's presented in a public space mm. um what is your hope if you have one that the audience sees and takes with them
1: it was important in this piece you know to to make it that big that you can literally enter it you know and that the uh, text is uh, known you know you know this story and you know how it begins so the the top letter uh, on the on the left is probably this, and you try to read it, because you can read here, maybe a word there or, or something there. So in fact, it's like, it's like a murmur. Mm-hmm. It's like something happening in the next room, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> something that you can grasp a, a word here and there, but no meaning, and uh, so you... So it's really just an atmosphere. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it sounds a bit like it's playing with learned gestures that we carry with us as yeah. Western individuals and playing with the boundary of that, of the inaccessibility of fully accessing exactly. language in, yeah. a, in our traditional way.
1: Yeah. The thing about the language is, is such a big uh, subject or... or you know, Mm -hmm. and uh, has so many layers that, uh, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm
0: -hmm. You have a career of over 40 years, and in that time you've exhibited uh, over 30 times, both locally and internationally. Are there specific exhibitions that stick out more so than others? This
1: is a little bit hard. Of course, yes, there are some milestones, because I like to approach a solo exhibition in the manner of you're in fact closing something so that you have an empty table, you know, mm. to start something new. And sometimes they do a little bit more than that, you know, they stick out. At one time, I used to have a small object or something on the show that uh, gave up something that you are working on now for the next, you know, but to pick out one, I don't know. No, mm-hmm. I don't think so. No.
0: That's an interesting point though of thinking of you know small objects that you're already working on yeah. Yeah. that are portals to the future of what's to come in your practice.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's really interesting. Do you remember your first solo exhibition?
1: Let me see. Oh yes. My first solo exhibition was actually uh, the, the, the year after I graduated from the art school that, uh, here in Reykjavik. Uh, most of my colleagues, my, my fellow students, uh, went abroad, mostly to Holland. But, but I had just had a, a baby. So we decided to go to the countryside in, in, to a small village in the East Coast. And teach for one year, and it was really a nice time. Mm-hmm. but uh, at the end of the year, I decided to apply for school and not to go to Holland, but the opposite direction because it, I wanted to concentrate and not be a part of a large community of Icelanders <laughs> you know I really didn't have any money, and there was i didn't know what to do, but I decided to have an exhibition to finance my stay there or or at least the travel cost or things like this and but it was really a nice exhibition and and i sold a lot of the drawings and you know things in the village and uh, of course I knew all the people and they they cared about me (laughs) maybe more than my works but that was my first exhibition actually
0: in your experience, um, I mean, you talk about your peers who, for the most part, were studying abroad in Holland and you chose to go the other direction to Canada. Are there any points that stick out in what you gained in studying in, in that international location as opposed to, you know, what you gather from your peers who many, you know, returned to Iceland to continue mm. their practices as well?
1: That's an interesting question. Of course, I think this is one of the advantages. It's very common that that uh, art students study abroad and uh, they go all over and uh, they come back and they bring their uh, influences and uh, ideas and uh, compare to each other. I remember th- those years, mm-hmm. s- shortly after I came back, you know, as... Uh, Always discussing things and and different ideas and different traditions and things. Mm -hmm. But, uh, of course, the the situation in in, uh, the States and and Canada were a little different from Europe (laughs) at that time, as well as now. uh, Nova Scotia is so close to New York. And there were a lot of teachers coming from New York to teach in Halifax, Mm -hmm. And the school has uh, studios in, in New York, so we could go for short visits. and So there was a lot of communication to New York, especially. Then the kitchen was hot and, uh, and all the galleries in, in Greenwich. And yeah, it was great fun.
0: That's a really nice connection for me to think about. If we go back to your use of text you're thinking about language in a certain way and storytelling and writing and drawing as more of a tool, mm. expression or experience rather than a form of communication mm. that's been defined as such. Can you bring us up to where you are right now and what you're working on?
1: I'm still working a little bit on, the, on this uh, destruction of the text. Also on, on just written letters. I'm, I'm, I've made, for example, these, uh, what I call monologues, I think it's two hours or so, just to write very closely everything that I'm thinking about. (laughs) And this is actually more difficult than it sounds. (laughs) I mean, uh, just totally everything. And write it so small and so tight, it it, almost is one surface, yeah, Mm -hmm. and that, that you can... Also, like, like in the other case, it's like many people are talking at the same time. It, something like that that really interests me with writing as drawing. I'm also working on things visually very connected to writing. I mean, it's like drawings of spider webs and cracks and, you know, things like this that uh, are very similar to to or or maps. That is also something I've been... been working on, like a city map or something. When you draw something like that, it looks very similar to spider webs. I'm trying to uh, make a connection between all these things because they they have so obviously uh, visual similarities. Mm -hmm. It's so obvious when you see it side by side, you know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. Well, as I said today, we are here in your studio surrounded by Past works and things that are ongoing. You've got a workshop in one corner where you, you know have the ability to work on sculpture at a certain yeah. scale and size. What is a normal working day like for you?
1: I like the routine of, of co- coming in the morning. But this small studio, which I had for a long time, I'm I'm always trying to make space here and there, you know. <laughs> and this actually has developed into my works in, in many cases you know in which way I'm always uh, rearranging everything you know and and my my works sometimes my installations sometimes are about that uh, stacking things and uh, doing uh, you know still life installations and and even my old uh, paintings have uh had a new form seen this what I did to my old paintings. I painted for five or six years and i and i rolled the paintings up in in a bundle of of yeah and and rolled on the roll the ingredients of <laughs> <laughs> and it was paintings. One painting a uh, uh, an old guy with a cigar or something you know it was figurative paintings, you know, mm-hmm. so I could t- describe them, and the t- description was enough that i could i knew what was in this this bundle you mm-hmm. know and uh, i so i didn't had to take it apart and you know and the years passed you know and and always these rows and i'm i'm tidying up my 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 studio, and oh, there they were. But I decided to make something out of this text because if you read the text, you just get the image, you know, in your head. Mm-hmm. So I started to cut them into stripes and glue them together so they look like a, a, a book. And a friend of mine works, she describes. Paintings and theater and two blind people. Yeah, that's her occupation. You know, I gave her photos of the paintings and asked her to describe them in a few sentences or, or you know, in, in text. She did, and uh, I had the text printed on a on a aluminium bar mm-hmm. that looks exactly like this uh, bar of of stripe. Uh, the paintings, mm-hmm. and they exhibited them just in this long bar. It's, so the idea is that you read the text and you know the painting is there, and you uh, you form an uh, an image in your head uh, of of the painting. So I thought it was just uh, I'm I'm just making a lot of pictures and. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, really nice. At one point in in the exhibition, there were a group of children with their teacher sitting on the floor and drawing from the description of the teacher. And she she read the text to them and and they drew pictures. And it was fabulous. It was just so beautiful pictures. Then I knew I had done the right thing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That opens up a whole new discussion of Of thinking about accessibility of visual art, you know something where we're quite often overlooking certain participants in society, Mm -hmm. whether or not it be someone who's visually impaired or children who are unable to read at this time, and yeah, that's a really lovely sort of transformation of of -hmm. the work itself.
1: Thank you. Yeah, it comes from reorganizing your studio. (laughs) the material that i see when i'm i'm using found materials found is not maybe the exact word for it because it's sometimes you it's something that you own yourself or belong to your childhood or something you know that that i use but in every case they are objects that have the have a history of their own yeah it's also of of uh, things that i find in the streets i mean i really believe that there's a story here, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that is often uh, the drive, the, the reason that why I pick them up, because I, there's a small glove, a children's glove, and I, I can just imagine very easily there's a story here, you know.
0: When do you know that you revealed or hit the right story?
1: Well, you don't know. You you just speculate. You know that that's you know that's the fun part of it.
0: It reveals itself. Yeah, of course, through the process. Yeah.
1: yeah. And at one, one point, I I wanted to um, collect uh, palettes from from painters all over, in, and I did. You know, I, I have a lot of them here. But I really that it it's also. You know, I, I sent them a little down just to see the colors better, and also to see this type of reading part of uh, of them. But it really raises the question of whose work is it? I mean, the painters mm-hmm. that have used them, or mine? That uh, mm-hmm. you know? And I like I like that also. You know the. Mm-hmm.
0: I wonder when you're when you're revealing the layers in these palettes, mm. does it sort of send you back directly to specific works? Are you able to read them in the same way that you, you know, read the quotes that you talked about your descriptions of your paintings in the role?
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was that was what what happened, and and uh, not in every case, of course. But I remember. Ah, this was when I was painting the This painting, or or something, you know, and sometimes you can really tell from the palettes of of the painters, of the Icelandic painters, that this painter is a landscape painter, and, and uh, things like this. It's, it's a fun speculation. I mean, for each and every one of them. And of course, it it reveals also how they paint. In some cases, they they are very organized. You know, all the the light colors are here, all the earth colors are there, and uh, things like this. Mm-hmm. Some, and some are very chaotic, and uh, that's also one part of this. But I have never exhibited them.
0: Okay. <laughs> a future project. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> one in the works. Moving into general thinking about the visual arts in Iceland, what has your experience been as a practicing artist on... Geographically, in Iceland, which is an island, very specific island borders, what have been the advantages or disadvantages of that?
1: The advantages is is that it's a small community and you know all the people, (laughs) well, most of the people. (laughs) I think the the situation is very active in Reykjavik and for the past years in some places in, in the countryside also. I think uh, there's also this group of people that know each other very well. Well, they have this living art museum, for example. I, I mean, it's it's very important for us. It's not a very vivid uh, gallery scene. Well, sometimes it is, yeah, but, but not so many galleries, but very active ones. I think that this this closeness of, of the artists and uh, this community is... is the advantages definitely but of course uh, this uh, uh, this also means that we are isolated I mean (laughs) we but that uh, is less the past years when when internet is uh, becoming so active
0: as you say in the 70s even people were traveling quite actively to seek art education outside of Iceland and returning with those skills
1: yeah Mm mm-hmm
0: so there's always maybe been this urge to reach out and, and come back.
1: Yeah, exactly. And
0: I guess that's also what really makes the scene different here. Yeah. This yeah. Are there moments thinking back into your student years and also up to the present that really stick out for you in terms of Icelandic art history? Things that have helped define maybe the way that you've approached your own work?
1: Talking about the living art museum and and uh, some years, the, the, mm-hmm. those were times that probably changed the history and uh, characters like Magnus Paulson and uh, Redfred Finson and of course Dieter Roth. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are people and times that uh, that changed everything, you know, here and and the way that we think of of art today. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. I think also the way that the young, young artists who are also still affected by these yeah. individuals in yeah. a, perhaps in a similar way
1: yeah mm-hmm.
0: Is there an artist artwork or art moment locally or globally that has influenced your practice the most or that you carry with you?
1: I remember the first uh, exhibition that I saw you know as a, as a boy going downtown, and we stumbled into Gallery Zoom, a few guys, maybe maybe 10, 11 years old or something, and uh, we thought that was funny to go to an art uh, gallery or or an exhibition. And and strangely enough, uh, in Gallery Zoom, on what they were through in in Reykjavik, uh, there were there were uh, this was an exhibition of prints I remember, and uh, they were all uh, under glass, in, hanged uh, installed very low on the wall, very low. And we looked at the exhibition, and there was this guy there uh, watching the exhibition and he came to us and talked to us and described the the drawings and uh, he said when you're in here you are art pieces in fact i remember this we we burst out laughing you know and uh, i found out later that I've, i i looked up this exhibition because it was very exact and uh, And it was an exhibition of of prints by Peter Holstein, the Dutch uh, printmaker and and artist. And the person who was there was Guilberg Berkson, the poet, the the writer.
0: Wow. What an incredible moment to remember.
1: (laughs) It it is. (laughs) Yes.
0: Looking back. Mm Well, thank you so much for having us in the studio today. It's been a pleasure to hear about um, your thoughts and your practice.
1: Thank you for coming. Thanks.
0: <laughs> thank you for joining episode three of the Icelandic Arts Centre podcast Out There. In episode four, we change things up with art collective Lucky Three, or Darren Mark, Dierfina Benita, and Melanie Obaldo. Lucky Three held their breakthrough exhibition, Lucky Me, in Kling and Bang in 2019, and have opened up conversation about nostalgia, diaspora, displacement, and belonging from the viewpoint of their Filipino origins. We talk identity and location, and their collaborative hopes and dreams. Join in here next time.